Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Hello and welcome to a very special episode in our History of the Netherlands podcast series. Today, we are going to take a completely different approach to what we normally do and are going to fill you in on a special project which we have been working on for the last 12 months. In late 2018, the three of us who work on this show, Julian, David and myself, Joe, got together with two other Australians living in Amsterdam. Nat and Noel, who have a creative design company called Nomad Tinker House, which makes luxury 3D printed jewellery and other products. Together, we came up with a proposal for something called the Amsterdam Light Festival. If you are not familiar with this festival, it is, in short, an event where different artists from all over the world set up light installations around Amsterdam based on a theme, which are made to be seen by boat or from the shore and which brighten up the dark winter months. The 8th edition of the festival runs from November 28th, 2019 until January 19th, 2020. When we are not busy digging ourselves deep into Dutch history, we actually have day and sometimes night jobs, rather unconventional ones actually, as we drive small boats around on the canals of Amsterdam and tell people tales about the city and its history. And for the last few winters, we have cruised the Amsterdam Light Festival, sharing stories of other artists' works, and egotistically imagining that we could one day maybe take part in it too, if we came up with a story worth telling through the medium of light. So, when we saw the call for concepts open on the Light Festival website last year, we thought, why not have a go? Upon further inspection, we saw that the route of the festival would be mostly in the east of the city, going all the way around Amsterdam's Artis Zoo, and that the theme for 2019 was Disrupt. So we threw around some ideas, trying to figure out how we could relate that theme to the history of the area which the route goes through. And that brings us to today's story. This episode does not fit into our regular chronological series as we are going to jump forward through the centuries to discuss what we believe to be the most disruptive event in Amsterdam's history, the Second World War. Before the war, at least 80,000 Jewish people lived in Amsterdam, most of them in the eastern part of the city in the same neighborhood as the zoo. Amsterdam was also one of the most socially left-leaning cities in the Netherlands, with large socialist and communist demographics, as well as a place where individual differences like sexual orientation were more socially accepted than pretty much anywhere else at the time. Essentially, many people living in Amsterdam had much to fear from the forthcoming brutal narrow-mindedness that would accompany the Nazi occupation. During the occupation, a building called the Hollandse Schouwburg, located just around the corner from the main entrance of the zoo, became the main deportation center for the Jews of Amsterdam. From there, they were transported to Westerbork, one of the Dutch concentration camps, 
before being sent to extermination camps in the east. The zoo itself remained open during the war years and was a popular place for German soldiers to visit. Amazingly, however, many Jews as well as resistance fighters and young Dutch men who didn't want to be sent to forced labor camps in Germany went into hiding in the zoo. The Dutch word for a person who went into hiding is onderdauker, which literally means one who dives under. An appropriate term coming from a country where roughly one quarter of the land is actually below sea level. It is believed that between 250 and 300 people hid in the Amsterdam Zoo for varying amounts of time during the war, and astonishingly, no arrests were ever made there. One story in particular that caught our attention was that of a Jewish lady called Dave van der Brink, who hid in the zoo, sitting often anonymously next to the ape enclosure by day, and sleeping above the wolf house by night. So with that in mind, the five of us came up with a concept that we were not only proud to submit for entry, but which to our immense surprise was even selected by the jury to be one of the 20 something installations featured in the eighth edition of the Amsterdam Light Festival. We can't reveal the specifics of the piece just yet. And besides, Audio is a terrible medium to try to explain a light art installation, but instead, in this episode, we are going to go deeper into the story of the zoo during the Second World War, and of the Onderdakers who managed to survive by hiding there. In the process of making our piece and researching the story, we relied heavily on a book called Ophrelefen in de Dierentain, Surviving in the Zoo which is a comprehensive account of what happened in the zoo during the war, and which unraveled so many more stories of people hiding in such a unique place. We were lucky enough to be able to meet and record a conversation with the author of this book, and that is going to be the basis of this episode. He's a kind, jolly, and passionate retiree who spends his days watching birds outside his house in the beautiful rural Dutch countryside, writing books, giving lectures, and organizing tours to Africa and the Middle East to go and look at even more exotic birds. His name is Martin Frankenhaus. And, well, why don't we let him introduce himself? I'm Martin Frankenhaus, born in July 1942. And the last 13 and a half year of my career, I was director in Artis Amsterdam Zoo. Martin's career saw him go from being a veterinarian at Rotterdam Zoo to a full professor of poultry pathology, to eventually becoming the director of Amsterdam Zoo. But no matter how much scientific research he was involved in, his passion has always been history. In fact, he said he's... Even more interested in the history than in the future of, of a science. We can relate to that. After becoming director of Amsterdam Zoo, Martin naturally began looking into its history. Arthur's Zoo was founded in 1838, making it one of the oldest zoos in Europe. So he started a database and began investigating every aspect of the zoo's past. And when I got to uh, Arthur's Zoo at wartime, I said, my God, how is it possible to 
to keep a zoo in a relative good condition in, for example, the hunger winter from 1944 to 1945, right in the center of the city, while the carnivores already needed about 150 kilograms of meat a day. So in his quest to learn more about how the zoo survived the war years, Martin got busy researching. I started interviewing some of the staff that was, were still alive, uh, found some newspapers that were digitalized uh, that I could search for artists' zoo. I wrote some articles and gave lectures on the topic and lots of information came in. There were a few pages written on the topic. And uh, finally, I, uh, I wrote this book, Overleven in the Dierentuin, and everything that had to do with the, the invasion of the Germans and the liberation, uh, people in hiding, famine, bombardment, battles and everything, you know, terror. We had gone to Martin's house to talk about this story and the book that he wrote about it. But as we spoke to him, we were blown away when we learned that he himself had also been an Onderdauker. I was in hiding myself. And I was born in the Catholic hospital in Enschede, in the eastern part of the country. And via the back door of, my, of that uh, hospital, I had to move out with my mother into hiding with a, farmer, a, a very befriended farmer's family. And I could stay with, my, with only my mother. My father looked so Jewish uh, as if the migration out of Egypt 3,000 years ago just happened with him, you know. So he was already in hiding and prepared everything for my mother and me. But Martin would not be able to live out the war years in relative safety on the farm. There was a sudden razzia around that farm where I stayed in the first half year, in the winter of 1942-1943. And the farmer panicked and grabbed me out of my crib and uh, put me in the wet straw behind the pig and uh, covered me with some um, bags and straw. And it was very cold. And, and then he put some food in the, in the trough. So the, the pigs made an incredible noise and <laughs> screamed louder than I did. And then it took longer than expected. And after four days, they they could take me into the house again and, and it, I was more or less frozen. And uh, within a few hours, the, uh, <clears throat> the pus, the, the fluid uh, streamed out of my nose and I had a terrible, uh, terrible pneumonia. And a physician, friends of my, my father, they came and said, well, he won't make it uh, to the next day. And there were hardly any medicines. And then he said, well, maybe because there was a British pilot that, that came down with his uh, plane and he had an open fracture leg and very serious infected. And the RAF dropped a sample of penicillin that was brand new at that moment, still in an experimental stage. 
And in the meantime, the, the Allied pilot died and this physician had this penicillin sample and said, it says it's for infections. Let's try it on that baby. And really, I recovered when I was still on a needle, I think. And then I was moved around in the region like a hot potato and nobody knew anymore where I was. And the last year I stayed with a family in uh, Almelo, also in the eastern part of the country. And there my parents found me again. Yeah, well, and that's, of course, it's quite strange. You, you meet your parents and they immediately feel that you are their child. But for me, they were totally strangers, you know. Mm. And, uh, <clears throat> Well, everything came all right. Yeah. yeah. As you might imagine, we were pretty taken by Martin's story. So when he asked us... So, um, what else do you want to know? Well, we wanted to know everything. Martin took us through the history of Amsterdam Artists Zoo. It was originally founded as a members-only zoological society known as Natura Artis Magistra. Latin for nature is the teacher of art. That's too much of a time-wasting name for pragmatic people like Amsterdamers. So pretty soon they simply referred to it as artis because this middle word was the one above the main entrance gate and so was the one they saw as they walked in. Artis has had a long and varied existence. It grew to feature an aquarium, an ethnographical museum, it was the homes of the very last quagga on the planet, which is a now extinct type of zebra. And it was a very popular place for visitors, especially with the Jewish residents who lived in the neighborhood nearby. Very popular, yeah. Because lot before the war, there were a lot of more or less orthodox Jews. They liked to go to walk in the zoo on Saturday and on Friday afternoon, they sent already the children to the zoo to pay the entrance fee for Saturday, you know. <laughs> yeah. But in the years after the Depression, when the prospect of war was once again looming on the continent, things began to go very badly for the zoo. And by 1939, it was pretty much broke. At the last minute, however, the zoo was saved by the local and provincial governments who stepped in and bought all of the buildings and the grounds for more than one million guilders. They then leased the grounds and the buildings back to the zoo for the very affordable sum of one guilder per year. But although the zoo had been saved from one catastrophe, in May 1940, a new one arrived. But then it's... Uh... The beginning of May, the German troops entered Amsterdam over the Berlagebrug, and they are welcomed by uh, quite a number of Dutch national socialists, Dutch Nazis. But in the center of the city, the people were much more depressed. The German invasion of the Netherlands had come as a surprise undeclared attack on what had been a neutral nation during the First World War and the destruction it wrought was immense. Rotterdam was seriously bombed during the war, in the very beginning, just as a warning, if you don't stop fighting, uh, we'll bomb more cities. And they said, we'll be Amsterdam. 
and you dragged it. They. The entire city centre of Rotterdam was essentially levelled by bombing on May 14th, 1940, with over 900 people losing their lives and roughly 85,000 people being left homeless. Rotterdam also had a zoo, and this too was completely destroyed, which resulted in animals escaping and roaming the city's smouldering and rubble-strewn streets in what can only be described as apocalyptic scenes. Sea lions, they were found in the remaining parts of the single uh, kind of canal, and the zebras were walking on the, uh, on the ruins of, of the city, there was a, a herd of bison grazing in the park on the other side of the street. There were exotic birds were flying, searching for food in the city and until they died, of course. And that was really something. Amsterdam was mostly spared from bombardment during the war, but strategic sites in the city were attacked by Allied forces. One such place was a railroad depot right next to the zoo where German forces had railroad cars with anti-aircraft guns set up, and a few stray bombs actually hit the zoo itself. So there was a, quite a lot of damage at some of the buildings, but nobody of the staff was harmed. And only one animal died, a rabbit, that should be fed to the crocodiles the next day. So <laughs> not wasted. <laughs> but this was the only bombs that uh, that got to the zoo. But with the arrival of the occupying forces, everybody knew that life in Amsterdam was about to change dramatically, especially for the roughly 10% of the population of the city that was Jewish. Some people tried to flee, while others took more drastic measures. And also in Arte Zoo that changed a lot, you know. The, the zoo had no Jewish staff, but three of the members of the board of directors uh, were Jewish, uh, Eduard Polak, and he managed to get on one of the very last boats from Emuiden to England. Emmanuel Boekman, yeah, a great scientist and writer who didn't want to flee, and he killed himself with cyanide, he and his wife, Janssen Nerden, on the 14th of the 15th of May. The third Jewish man on the artist board of directors was Robert May. On the 15th of May 1940, a police report was written which stated that three bodies had been found in an apartment in Amsterdam South, those of Robert May, his brother Paul, and Paul's wife Rosina Fuld, all victims of apparent suicide. But all was not as it seemed, as Robert May, despite what this police report said, did not actually pass away until 1961. So how did Robert May manage to disappear on paper? Well, there were two uh, witnesses, and one is, this is well funny, is Johnny Post. And Johnny Post was the partner of our homosexual director of the board of directors, Robert May. That's right, Robert May's life partner, Johnny Post, was able to fool the bureaucracy into thinking that Robert May was dead, saving him from further attention during the war. This is an incredible story, especially when you consider that it was 1940. 
but Amsterdam has always been a forward-thinking place, even for homosexuals. And this Johnny Post was called in Amsterdam a Joodse bruidje, the Jewish bride, you know, after the painting, famous yeah. painting of Rembrandt. <laughs> Isn't that funny that yeah. they could already in pre-war Amsterdam uh, having humor yeah. about this phenomenon while in so many countries people don't dare to, to pronounce the word even. But with the occupation, Amsterdam was about to enter a new and way less tolerant era. In the very beginning of the war, there were these signs all over the city in parks and cinemas and gardens, the public, everything, also in the zoo. It says, uh, for Joden verboden, it's forbidden to enter for Jews. But also on the gate of Arte Zoo was such a, uh, a sign. Mm. And the director, and only recently I managed to get the letter that was sent by, by the, the director of the zoo, Armand Sunier, to the Jewish members of the zoo, that he was very sorry, but he was not allowed to let them enter the zoo anymore. But although he was not forced to do so, he said, if you want to have half of your fee that you paid for that year, you can have it back. I will give that to you. The director of Artist Zoo at this time was a man named Armand Sunier. When Martin spoke of Sunier, his face would light up, obviously full of admiration. It was Sunier more than any other individual who was able to guide artists through the difficult war years, more or less intact, through the force of his personality and his foresightedness. He was a zoologist from Swiss parents, and he was fluent in German, which what really helped him during the war. And he was very charismatic and uh, felt already in 1939 what was going to happen. And then he, he managed to fill all the food storage facilities with hay and straw and nuts and corn and everything, uh, and lots of meat. Because around Amsterdam and also around Utrecht, huge areas were inundated to form a defense line to the east. Lots of, uh, of animals were drawn and, or had to be slaughtered because of the water, they couldn't be saved. And uh, the meat of these animals was frozen. Sunir was not only able to deal with the logistics of providing food to the animals during the war, but he also understood how to protect his staff from the occupying forces. One of the most dreaded parts of the occupation was the prospect of being enlisted in Arbeitseinsatz, sent to forced labour in Germany. When artist's staff were called up, Sunir knew how to fight back against the German chain of command. He knew the Germans very, very well, and also how to, how to act. For example, when there was a call for some of his staff members to go into the Arbeitseinsatz, he wrote letters, he made stamps himself, and he says, as long as there are enough stamps <laughs> on these letters, it's all right. And he managed to keep his... His, his staff out of the Arbeitseinsatz. Yeah. 
he gets he is the one who saved the zoo and a lot of 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 his staff. Yeah, he he was absolutely great guy. Yeah. It's important to remember that not everybody in the Netherlands was unhappy with the arrival of the new Nazi regime. Somewhere between 22 and 25,000 Dutchmen enlisted in the Waffen SS as volunteers, the highest number in proportion to total population anywhere in occupied Europe, except for Austria and Germany itself. Some of the artist zoo staff were also collaborators. There were three people that were, as we call, fout, wrong. And one was working on the administration, the other one in the restaurant. They were quite harmless. And one of the gardeners was enlisted in the Waffen-SS. And he also went with his unit, the Waffen-SS Division Westland, to the Eastern Front. And as I usually say, he stayed in the country of his choice. Mm. Yeah. As the occupation continued, the anti-Jewish policies of the new regime began to intensify, and the area around the zoo, the historical Jewish neighbourhood of the city, was most affected by this. Very close to the zoo, there was a kind of ghetto, a part of the city that was surrounded by barbed wire and gates that were guarded by the Germans, and all the Jews from the region and far out were uh, were forced to move to this area just to concentrate them. And there were 80,000 Jews in Amsterdam. There were 140 or something like that in the Netherlands altogether. And 102 or 104,000 were killed. Just around the corner from the main entrance of the zoo was a theatre which had been built on land donated to the zoo by its original director, Gerard Westermann, after his death. Originally known as the Artist Schauburg, it was taken over by a theatre company in the late 19th century and renamed the Hollenser Schauburg, a name which would live in infamy. And the Germans, uh, in the beginning of the war, they uh, made it a Jewish theatre, where only Jewish artists... Uh, could perform in front of uh, Jewish visitors. And later on it became a deportation center. And then from there they were brought to the, by streetcar to the Muiderport station or to the central station. And from there to Westerbork, the Dutch concentration camp from there they went every Tuesday night, a train left for Auschwitz or Bergen-Belsen, uh, Majdanek and so on. Mm. The uh, Razias started uh, and yeah, the Jews were collected from their houses. Uh, hardly nobody knew where, where can I go into hiding, you know, they were, they were all trapped like rats. Anti-Jewish measures were ratcheted up. Jews were forbidden from working in the civil service, from travelling, from using public transportation and even from riding bicycles. With the authorities closing in, many people were driven to desperation, trying by whatever means possible to evade capture and deportation. Many made the most difficult choice. There were hundreds and hundreds extra 
suicides in Amsterdam. I have the numbers from before the war, and after the war, during the war. And every time there was a new bekantmachung, an announcement of the Germans that from now on you are not allowed to, then there was a new peak on suicides. That's really amazing. Nevertheless, for the rest of the city, life had to continue somehow. Artist Zoo became one of the few places in Amsterdam where people could go to try and escape from this new harsh reality. Artezu was very, very popular, you know, also during wartime, because there was not much else in the city. The zoo wasn't just popular with residents, but also particularly so with the occupying soldiers. Oh, they really liked the zoo. Zoos are still very popular with Germans. Yeah, there were dozens and dozens of Germans in the zoo every day. And, and the, the, the German authorities regarded the zoo as very important for entertainment for their soldiers. Martin showed us photographs of German soldiers visiting the zoo, looking at the lions and at the penguins. Despite the fact that the German soldiers were part of an occupying army, they still needed to buy tickets to enter the zoo. The Dutch are well known for their business acumen indeed. Even more amazingly, however, the exhibits that the soldiers were enjoying were hiding a secret unbeknownst to them. Even the Germans had to pay. Yeah, and here they are watching the penguin because they, they are so well uniformed <laughs> and can walk in Gleichschritt like the Germans, you know, in one line. <laughs> It was a very popular exhibit, but what they didn't know is that this exhibit was designed by Jaap Kaas, a Dutch artist, a very famous Dutch artist. He was a Jew and also were people in hiding in, in that penguin exhibit. Hang on. Did he say people were hiding in the exhibit? No, nobody expected. Even when I told the story during all kinds of presentations that I did and they said, of people in hiding in the zoo, I can't imagine. And also the Germans didn't expect people in hiding in the zoo. It was probably the very last place where they expected. That's right. In the midst of the horror of the deportations, people were hiding in one of the most popular places for the occupying German soldiers to visit. How could this have come to be? When there was a razzia in the plantage, the neighborhood around the zoo, People who tried to escape from the Arbeitseinsatz and Jewish neighbors, they climbed the fences and went to keepers. With the help of zookeepers, people were quickly whisked to safety and hidden in various places around the zoo, including inside animal exhibits and the storerooms above them where the food was kept. One place they were hidden away was inside the monkey rock, right by the main entrance. In times of need, keepers had a plank hidden nearby the exhibit, which they could grab. And then there was a, a small bridge made across the uh, moat around the primate rock, and then they could hide inside. The zoo was such an unexpected and successful place to hide that some people ended up there for long periods of time. Sometimes people stayed only for one or two days. Sometimes they stayed for weeks or months or even one and a half year. Imagine what it must be like living in a zoo for one and a half years, but even more so, imagine living there with your spouse and your child. 
Martin explained to us about a Jewish family that did exactly that, hiding in the upper story of the old pheasant house. And on the first floor, a young Jewish couple with one daughter, little daughter, lived at least one and a half year in this floor. And, and during the night, they usually went out and walked a little bit around their place in hiding. But in fact, hardly never they met other people in hiding. And they were really surprised sometimes after the war that, for example, friends or neighbors or relatives were in hiding also in the zoo, only a few exhibits further, you see. Despite how long people managed to stay in the zoo undetected, it would have been an incredibly difficult test of patient endurance, all the while harbouring a constant fear at being found. Another person who hid in the zoo was a young artist named Ari Teowisa. He hid with a group of people in the Bear Palace, a building which had large windows in the roof, which allowed him to draw in the beautiful light during the day. In the evening, however, this world became a waking nightmare. The sculptor Ari Tewisse, he lived there as a young artist, and he liked it because he could work very well with the beautiful light through the window and in the roof. But at night he was terribly afraid because as the youngest of the group, he had to sleep against the door, after which a huge grizzly bear constantly tried to break. <laughs> so you're constantly scratching. <laughs> we can laugh about it now, thinking of the absurdity of the situation, but imagine trying to sleep with a grizzly bear mere inches away, with only a wooden door between you and it. For everyone at the time, the reality of this situation was simply horrible. But so was the alternative of what might happen if you couldn't find a place to hide. As the deportations ramped up in scale, Jewish Amsterdamers began to wonder what was really happening to the people being sent to the east. Apparently they were being sent to labour camps, but why then were babies and old people also being sent away? What could they do in a labour camp? Martin told us about one Jewish man he interviewed, who had hidden in the zoo. He was only a young boy when his entire family was ordered to wait on the street at a certain time for deportation, and although very hesitant, ended up complying. Nevertheless, this family went, a grandfather, uh, his parents, and 12 or 14 brothers and sisters. And they were sitting in the truck, and a Dutch policeman because there were no Germans sometimes involved and that some of the Dutch were eager to do that. And he, he read all the names of the people who should live lived in that house. And then he said to my spokesman, he said, hey, you're not on the list. Yeah, but he said, well, these are my father and mother, my grandfather, brothers, sisters, everything. Out, you're not on the list. So they dragged him out of the truck and he fell on the street and the truck went away. He never saw, he never saw someone back. No, no, all perished. And, uh, but he, he was not allowed to stay with his family because he was not on the list. Jewish Amsterdamers were not alone in their fear of being put on a list. The imposition of Arbeits Einsatz, the deployment of forced labor, 
meant that anyone above the age of 14 was at risk of being sent to essentially toil as a slave. The majority of all the people in hiding in the zoo were in fact young men that wanted to escape the Arbeitseinsatz, mm -hmm. the forced labor, slave labor in Germany. Majors in the occupying forces were ordered to compile lists of people who could be packed up and sent away to these work camps. And if a, if a major couldn't find uh, enough men for the Arbeitseinsatz, they had some hostages. And if you don't have enough people before that and that date, we'll shoot them. Yeah. They were just picked from the street. Yeah. As we mentioned earlier, many of the staff members from artists who were called up for Arbeitseinsatz were protected by Sunir and his stamps. Martin was about to tell us one such story when suddenly he stopped talking and gazed intently outside his window. All I could see were some cows. Yeah. The, the, the gardener... The, we were cows? No, no, I, I, I think I saw a sparrowhawk uh, oh. flying. From my fifth year, I'm crazy about birds, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Martin really does love birds. Back to the staff at Artis. One of them, a guy called Hank Blanc, was called up for the Arbeitseinsatz and himself had to become an Onderdauker at the zoo. Hank Blanc, he, he passed away now, but I met him several times and he was a zoologist and knew some of the staff and he was also, already when he was 21 or 22, he was a specialist in arms and ammunition and explosives. And the Germans were chasing him and he managed to, uh, to climb the fence of the zoo and went to one of the keepers he knew and he hid him and he had to stay in the zoo for quite a time. And he stayed in a kind of cage and he, was, he stayed there for days and days in the, in the wet straw and there were rats and everything. And he, he told me uh, one night a cockroach uh, ate half of his eyebrow. <laughs> and he visited once in the zoo. I, I took him with my car and brought him to the zoo again and had to push him in a wheelchair be, because he couldn't even stand anymore. And then suddenly he saw this building right in the middle of the zoo and he said, I've been in hiding for weeks and weeks on the top floor. And he stood up and walked to the door. And his wife said, I haven't seen him walking in, in half a year or a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how many people did hide in the zoo during the war? That's still a question. Nobody knows. I heard the numbers. It must be between 250 and 300 altogether. Sometimes there were nights that, that there was more than a dozen people in hiding in the zoo. The Germans didn't ever catch wind that so many of those they were hunting were essentially hiding right under their noses in the zoo. Surely somebody must have been caught. Never, no, no. There was never a real razzia in the zoo, although I've been told that sometimes German policemen came to the zoo and then as soon as they entered, 
telephone calls spread all over the zoo and those departments that didn't have a telephone uh, because there were only a few telephones at that time, colleagues went there and said uh, they have to go in hiding. So what would it have been like hiding in the zoo? They were hiding day and night. Sometimes uh, some of the people that were in hiding assisted the staff in taking care of the animals, but in most cases, you couldn't do that. No, it was usually prevailing. People were bored. Mm -hmm. Of course, they, they had books. Books were brought by relatives and neighbors and everything just to, uh, to do something. But I, some wrote books, but most read or just said it must be incredible boring. Things got harder for everyone under occupation as the war went on. Coming into 1943, many had suffered and disappeared under the repressive policies of the occupiers. And yet the zoo went on, maintained by Armand Sunier, his staff, and the secret occupants that they held within. One of the zoo buildings was appropriated by the occupying forces and became a registration office, which contained the personal information of all the people living in Amsterdam and Utrecht. In the Netherlands at this time, registration with the municipality also included information about which religion you followed, making the persecution of Jews in particular that much easier. A resistance group identified this building as a potential target for attack. And then in 27th of March 1943, there was a, a Dutch resistance group consisting of uh, young artists and young students in self-made German and Dutch police uniforms. And they came after closing time to the front door and rang the bell and said to the guards, uh, we are uh, sent to inspect uh, everything. And they, and they entered the building and then they immobilized the guards with Pentotal, if you are interested, <laughs> and dragged them out of the of the building on the rear side and dropped them somewhere on the, under the bushes in the zoo. And then they emptied all the drawers with all the identity cards of of, of over a hundred thousand, a few hundred thousand people, and uh, spread gasoline and put explosives uh, on certain points, and then they went away and the whole roof was blown away from the building and all the carts were. But it is very difficult to burn carts from pre-war quality. So only 15 or 20% was demolished, but there was a, a reserve documentation in The Hague. Mm. One of the leaders, it was Gerrit Jan van der Veen who managed to escape. And he was later trying to liberate a colleague from a German prison and he was shot and died. And the other guy who is leading was Willem Arondeus, also an artist and a poet. And when he went with a priest, Catholic priest, to the place where he was to be executed, he said, Shortly before he was killed, he said to the priest, please, will you be so kind and tell everybody that also homosexual men can be gallant. 
Hmm. Yeah. This act of heroism shows the diversity of people who, whether actively or passively, found the courage to resist the occupation. This would continue on right into the final years of the war. The winter between 1944 and 45 became known as the Hunger Winter. Food ran out in the occupied northern Netherlands and the population began to starve. For the people hiding in the zoo, this made their life even more difficult. Martin tried to explain what it must have been like. Can you imagine you sit there and it's dark, there's no electricity, it's dark, it's cold, it's wet, and you have to wait for someone that brings you food. For the Jewish people that were in hiding, they were fed by the keepers because there were no relatives anymore. And the people that were in hiding for the Arbeitseinsatz, they were fed by neighbors, friends, relatives who brought food to the zoo and hide it somewhere between the bushes or gave it to one of the keepers they knew. Some starving Amsterdamers even went to the zoo to try and steal food from the animals. Martin explained the story of one man who would go to the zoo with his brother to do just that. They had a very long stick with a, a nail on the end driven right through the, uh, through the stick. They hide in, in the bushes near the bear's uh, palace. And as soon as the keeper threw the old bread that they got from the, the German Navy, when they threw the, the old bread into the cage, they just pulled some of the, of, the, of, the, of the bread out. Some people just stole the animals themselves. A giant pig famously vanished from the zoo one night and almost definitely ended up in several people's sandwiches the next day. Despite the famine, the zoo carried on. Aman Sunir, the director, had thus far managed to look after his charges, the animals, well, most of the animals, and his staff. But towards the end, he was doing so to the detriment of his own health. Grateful staff, however, ensured that no matter what, Sunir would survive. So they would come up with any excuse in order to leave him alone in a kitchen with food. One of the very few staff that I s still could interview, Cor Wiers, and he, uh, he was in charge of a little kitchen. So they tried to find the all kinds of wild weeds and corn and things that they had and, and tulip bulbs and sugar beets and boiled them all and made, made a, a ball of it and fed it to the animals. And, Every morning, the director came to the different departments, and when he entered the kitchen of Cor, he said, uh, good morning, Cor, everything all right here? Special things to... And every time Cor had something, to, or he had a very severe diarrhea, or some of his colleagues needed his help because an animal had escaped, or a fence was gone, or a pipe uh, blocked, or things like that. And then uh, he left the director for... a few minutes alone in the kitchen with some spoons and, and then the director could eat something out of a huge bowl. You know, and that's the way they kept him alive because they realized that this man was extremely important to keep alive because he, he was the only one who was able to save the zoo and the staff. Because at that time, the uh, differences between the director and the staff were such that you couldn't say to your 
boss, well, I think you are very hungry. I, I have some food for you. No, you couldn't do that. It was not appropriate. Hmm. The director, Armand Sunier, had to be kept alive. I think they would let me die, but... Uh, <laughs> Sunier had somehow found a way to balance the needs of the zoo, the staff, the authorities, and the people hiding amidst all of it. He knew everything, but he didn't want to be involved. He wants to keep his hands clean so that he can always communicate with the Germans for extra coal or extra electricity or extra etc. Some of Sunyi's actions to do this reflected the horror of the times. There were hundreds and hundreds of dogs from which the owners were deported or in hiding or killed or couldn't afford the food anymore for their dogs. So these dogs were caught and lots of them, many of them were fed to the big felines. Lions, tigers, jaguars, leopards, are very fond of dog, really. They love dog meat. Finally, after five years of the terror, violence and starvation of the Nazi occupation, Amsterdam was liberated. And no longer did people need to hide in fear of their lives. The Allied troops came and, of course, the first thing that the uh, Allied troops did was paying a visit to the zoo. (laughs) Now, not only could people come out of hiding, but they could return to the Netherlands from exile. One such person was an Amsterdam Jew called Bernard van Leer, who had made a fortune with his petroleum barrel company. He had spent the war in Switzerland and had a thing for animals. And immediately after the war, he came back to Holland. He was a really real animal lover. And he he had his own little circus where he, he, he performed in his own circus. And then he went to the zoo immediately after he arrived in Amsterdam, first thing he did. And he entered the zoo and said to the first keeper that he met his uh, Fritz Portilia is still working here. And he said, yes, well, can you call him for me? Because I, we were in the same high school class. And so Fritz Portilia, hey, Bernard van Leer, how wonderful to see you again and still alive. And, uh, and then Bernard van Leer asked, and how about the animal collection? Because before the war, he was at the zoo almost every week. And Fritz Portilia said, well, it's quite disastrous, you know, we have not been able to buy new animals. Uh, There was no exchange between zoos anymore. The food was very bad, so quite a number of animals passed away and the reproduction was very low. And then he said, well, take a piece of paper and write down, what do you need? And then Fritz Portilia wrote down so many giraffes, so many lions, uh, leopard, ostriches, uh, a whole list of animals. And then Bernard van Leer said, you can order them and send me the bill. But on one condition, I insist that also a cockatoo will be bought that when I walk by, he shouts bastard to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) rotsack. So this happened. Bernard van Leer's generosity in getting the zoo going again reflects the importance that the zoo had held in the pre-war era of Amsterdam society. 
These stories of Onderdarkers, which, with the help of Martin, we were able to bring to you, reflect the importance of the zoo during the war, as a sanctuary to more than just wild animals, but also to humans who hid in the rafters, in the wolf house, next to hungry grizzly bears and behind penguin exhibits as Nazi soldiers looked on ignorantly. The stories of the zoo in wartime bring to mind an ancient Latin proverb, Homo homini lupus, man is wolf to man. This was definitely the case during the years of occupation in Amsterdam. But because people could hide amongst the actual wolves and other animals in the zoo, they could avoid being hunted down by the wolves who roamed outside its walls. Since the war, Martin has contributed his own legacy to the importance of the zoo in the years that followed, and a part of that is in the time and effort that he has put in to make sure that we do not forget what incredible events happened to ordinary people. It's part of the history of the city. Uh, the city has an incredible rich history, uh, not only from the war, but also from the golden age onwards, and also after the war. And I think the history of the zoo is just part of the history of the city of Amsterdam. And it is the incredible nature of that history and of the stories which through Martin's diligence remain known to us, of how people sought to care for animals and each other during the war, and particularly how people seeking refuge found it within the confines of such a unique place that inspired us for the Amsterdam Light Festival. Together with Nat and Noel from Nomad Tinker House, we at Republic of Amsterdam Radio have created an artwork called Hiding in the Wolf's Lair, which aims to pay homage to the Onderdakers who hid in the zoo and to those who risked their lives to help them. We hope our artwork serves as a reminder of how humanity can prevail when confronted with the disruptive consequences that can result from the inhumanity of xenophobia and fear. We hope you can visit Amsterdam Light Festival Edition 8 to see our artwork. The festival is best seen from the water of Amsterdam's canals, and there is no better way to experience those canals than on a boat tour with those damn boat guys. Damn as in Amsterdam, D-A-M. We offer tours of the festival in small, cozy boats with a maximum of 10 passengers. You can make a booking at thosedamnboatguys.com. Again, that's dam, D-A-M. If you would like to organize a private tour of the festival with one of us from Republic of Amsterdam Radio as your skipper behind the wheel, that's also a real possibility. Email ahoy at thosedamnboatguys.com to find out more information and mention that you heard this podcast. If you're unable to make it to Amsterdam, we will miss you but we'll have photos available on our website, republicofamsterdamradio.com. For more information about Nat and Noel and their amazing work at Nomad Tinker House, visit their website, nomadtinkerhouse.com. That's N-O-M-A-D-T-I-N-K-E-R-H-O-U-S-E. I had to remember how to spell house. All of the links just mentioned can be found in the episode description. 
And above all else, a massive thank you to Martin Frankenhaus for giving us his time, his attention, sitting with us, giving us lots of coffee and sharing his passion for history and Sparrowhawks. This has been a production by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.